0: Hello, and welcome to Out of the Archive Box, a podcast from the team here at the Borthwick Institute for Archives at the University of York. In each episode, we'll bring you stories, insights and discoveries from the many fascinating archives held here. In this episode, we'll go through some of the highlights of the last month here at the Borthwick, and we'll learn all about how the church would run in the Middle Ages from the Northern Waiting. But first, We've had another busy month here at the Borthwick, despite the new national lockdown. A full rundown can be found in our monthly update on our website, but here's a few highlights of what we've been up to in November. Just before we close for the new restrictions, we took in an additional accession from the combined parish of St Helen Stonegate and St Martin Coney Street in York. You might not be aware that the Borthwick is the designated place of deposit for parish records for the Archdeaconry of York, This means as well as looking after the historic records of over 200 parishes, we also continue to collect new records from them, meaning our parish archives stretch from the 13th century right the way through to 2020. The new edition includes records relating to the upkeep of the church buildings, the famous St Martin's Clock over Coney Street in York, and the minutes of the parochial church council. And you can see all our parish record collections on our online catalogue. We've also added the catalogue of the Murfield Papers, that's the archive of the Anglican religious order, the Community of the Resurrection. Founded in 1892, the community has been based at Murfield in West Yorkshire since the 1930s. Contrary to the withdrawn life you might expect of a religious order, the Community of the Resurrection has been active in lay ministry and education and has maintained a strong commitment to social action throughout its history. In 1902, it opened a theological training college for Men Without Means, it also ran schools in Africa, and the community's member include Trevor Huddleston, who earned the nickname Makafile, or Dauntless One, during his time in South Africa for his very public opposition to apartheid. We've also added indexes of pupils at the Blue and Greycoat schools in York to our catalogue. These indexes were compiled from several different sources, notably minute books of the committee who ran the schools and oversaw admissions. They not only record the names, parishes and dates of birth or baptism for the pupils, some of them also give rather candid opinions of the children's character and behaviour as well. The entry for William Coverdale of St John's, Micklegate, admitted in 1837 at the age of nine, records him as being expelled for repeatedly running away. He was a very bad boy with a worse mother by whom he was encouraged. It's not all bad school reports, however. The entry for William Morritt, admitted in 1844, described him as being of good ability and honest, if rather eccentric. One notable success story is that of James Dahl, admitted in 1850, who the committee approved as being of superior capacity and well-behaved. Dahl later settled in Nelson, New Zealand, where he became a noted botanist with a successful horticultural business. Finally, the number of archival descriptions on Borthcat on the 1st of December 2020? 72,864. Now, do you know your rural dean from your dean and chapter? How about your Archbishops and your Archdeacons? As an archive with a specialisms in record from the established church, including the records for the Archdiocese of York back to 1225, we're used to dealing with the ins and outs of how the church operated, so we know it can be a little bit complicated. Not to worry though, as one of the Northern Way team is here to guide you through how the church operated in the Middle Ages.
1: Hello, I'm Helen Watt, Research Fellow in the Department of History at the University of York, I'm part of the Northern Way project team, which is examining the registers of the Archbishops of York dating between 1304 and 1406. A previous project, Archbishops Registers Revealed, created a resource comprising high quality images of the full series of registers surviving between 1225 and 1650, contained in a database to which we can add details of each entry in each folio, such as personal and place names, subject types, dates and publication notes. Now we are gradually indexing entries for the 14th century registers and you can view the images and search the database on our website archbishopsregisters.york.ac.uk To help set the registers of the medieval archbishops in context, In this podcast I'm going to be looking at the medieval ecclesiastical administration, that is, administration of the Christian Church in England, as it existed from the time after the conquest in 1066 up to the time of Henry VIII in the mid-16th century, when Henry became head of the Church of England and carried out the reformation of the Church. I should also point out that medieval ecclesiastical administration existed alongside English royal government administration, but not always harmoniously. I'll be giving an overview of ecclesiastical administrative units, their personnel, and the responsibilities of the chief officers, the archbishops, to show how they are reflected in the registers of the Archbishops of York. There are some materials to go with this podcast which are available on our website, www.york.ac.uk forward slash history forward slash research forward slash northern hyphen way. A glossary of terms in case any that I should use are unfamiliar. Also, a list of the kinds of resources my colleagues and I find very useful when indexing the registers. And lastly, a very brief outline of how the various ecclesiastical institutions and individuals of the medieval church in England worked together. To start with ecclesiastical administrative units then, authority over the church in England and Wales was and is ranked into a hierarchy of administrative units and personnel. You could think of this hierarchy a little like a set of Russian dolls, with the highest units as the largest doll on the outside and the smallest as the last tiny doll on the inside. Working from the highest units down, these are the two provinces, the province of Canterbury, covering the south of England and also Wales, and York, covering most of Northern England. The provinces are divided into dioceses, which are divided in turn into archdeaconries, made up of deaneries, which consist of groups of parishes and right down to the smallest units, chapelries and other smaller entities within the parish, some of which I will mention later. Within these administrative units, there were various types of institution. At the top, the largest were the cathedrals. In the Middle Ages, some cathedrals were described as secular. They were staffed by clergymen who were not members of a religious order. Others, described as monastic, staffed by those who were. Other large institutions were the religious houses themselves, the abbeys and priories, also collegiate churches, a college in this sense being a body of priests living together. In the middle of the hierarchy were the parish churches, the most common forms of places of worship, sometimes containing one or more chapelry. And at the bottom of the hierarchy there were the very smallest types of unit, such as a chantry, A small chapel in a cathedral or church or an oratory which might simply exist as a room or other space within a church or private house set aside for services and prayer i'll now run through most of these various entities in a little more detail and explain the links between them since our project is most interested in the medieval province of york i'll concentrate on that the boundary between it and the province of canterbury ran from the humber on the east coast of Yorkshire, down from Yorkshire, round Nottinghamshire, then up along the western edge of Yorkshire to the Ribble on the west coast of Lancashire. This province consisted of three dioceses York, the area under the Archbishop acting as bishop, and Durham and Carlisle, each with their own bishop subordinate to the Archbishop of York. It covered the whole of northern England, including parts of Lancashire and the old counties of Westmorland and Cumberland, now Cumbria, as well as Nottinghamshire in the Midlands. The Archbishop also had personal jurisdiction over Hexham in Northumberland, within the Diocese of Durham, and over Churchdown in Gloucestershire, which, because of that personal jurisdiction, are technically described as peculiars. Within the province, the three main churches are York Minster, a secular cathedral served by clergymen, the dean and chapter under the bishop, and Durham and Carlisle, regular or monastic cathedrals, home to a community of monks and served by the prior and chapter under the bishop acting as abbot. Other officials in the secular cathedrals were the presenter, in charge of the music and the choir, the chancellor, a legal expert, the treasurer, responsible for the cathedral treasures and property, and canons and Prebendaries the body of priests of the cathedral. As I mentioned before, other major churches in the province were the collegiate churches. In Yorkshire these were Beverley and Ripon, and in Nottinghamshire, Southell, staffed by secular canons, and at Beverley with a provost in charge of the church lands. Other institutions, as I'm sure you'll be aware, were the many religious houses in the northern province, for instance Revo Abbey. These houses often with very large abbey or priory churches in which the monks or nuns worshipped under the head of the religious house, the abbot or prior or abbess or prioress. Other male officers included the sub-prior, the cellarer in charge of provisions and infirmarer in charge of the sick among many others. And obviously there would be similar female roles in houses of nuns. Unless exempt from the archbishop's jurisdiction, These houses were subject to him, in particular with regard to his visitations, which I'll mention again shortly, elections of heads of the houses and their obedience to him, also control of who entered the houses, and discipline of errant monks and nuns, and you may very well have heard of at least one wayward nun, Joan of Leeds, who figured heavily in the publicity at the launch of our project, and has also become the star of a play in London. I'll now move on to outline some of the personnel who presided over these ecclesiastical administrative units. At the top of the hierarchy of personnel in England and Wales, as I'm sure you'll know, are the Archbishops of Canterbury and York. At present, Justin Welby, Archbishop of Canterbury, and Stephen Cottrell, the new Archbishop of York, following the retirement of Dr John Sentamu earlier this year. Since the two Archbishops are... Also, the bishops of their diocese, Canterbury and York respectively, they each have many responsibilities as bishop, with added powers as archbishop or chief bishop of their province, Canterbury taking precedence over York. As regard the diocese, each of these was and still is divided into smaller units, archdeaconries, each presided over by an archdeacon, who acted under the bishop and the Diocese of York is made up of five of these, the Archdeaconries of York, Cleveland and the East Riding, covering most of Yorkshire, and the Archdeaconry of Richmond, covering parts of Yorkshire, also Lancashire, Westmorland, and Cumberland. Richmond was the largest and wealthiest Archdeaconry in the country, making the office of Archdeacon a plum job, often for royal officials and various cardinals frequently absentee Italians. Lastly, the Archdeaconry of Nottingham, covering the county of Nottinghamshire. Each of these Archdeaconries was, in turn, divided into several smaller units, deaneries, or rural deaneries, staffed by a rural dean under the Archdeacon, and each deaconry is made up of a group of parishes. As for places of worship in the parishes, I expect you might be most familiar with the parish church, as there are so many in the city of York itself. The parish is generally one of the smallest ecclesiastical administrative units, presided over by a rector or vicar under the dean, but many also contain chapelries, presided over by a priest or chaplain, which cover even smaller areas within it. And other smaller units, which I described earlier, might comprise chantries in a cathedral or church, where chaplains would say prayers for the dead, or a chapel in a private house for family and household worship, or oratories, also in private houses or churches, and i have been to one in a parish church, although not in Yorkshire, actually at Stockport in Cheshire, which has a room above it in which the priest or chaplain would have lived. So having looked at the ecclesiastical administrative units and their personnel and before we look at the responsibilities of the chief officer, the archbishop, we'll look at those of the bishop because, as I mentioned before, the archbishop was also bishop of his own diocese and the bishop's duties fell into three main areas. Firstly, the bishop was the spiritual head of the diocese with responsibility for the religious life of everyone there with sole responsibilities for these duties. The confirmation of children, that is, the confirmation of their entry into the church after baptism. The ordination of priests, giving them the responsibility to look after the religious life of their parishioners, and the dedication of churches as sacred places of worship. If a bishop were unable to carry out important duties such as these, then another bishop, a suffragan, could be commissioned to act for him. The bishop would also preside over diocesan synods, meetings of the clergy of the whole diocese at which they would be consulted and instructed and carry out the bishop's visitation. One of the most important instruments of his administration to make inspections of the state of pastoral, judicial and administrative affairs within the diocese and determining reforms. The bishop would carry out a primary visitation within the first year after his enthronement, followed by visitations every three years thereafter. Secondly, the bishop had judicial responsibilities focused on the administration within the diocese of canon law, that is, a legal system based on the canons or rules of the church. Ecclesiastical law was administered in several different types of court, of which the bishop's court were the highest within the diocese, and the archbishop's, The highest in the province. In York this was the Chancery Court and in Canterbury the Court of Arches. The consistory court at Chester Cathedral is now the only surviving ecclesiastical courtroom dating from the mid-17th century. These courts dealt mainly with offences to do with morals and for records of causes, that is cases, in the northern province see the York Cause Papers Project website www.dhi.ac.uk forward slash cause papers. The highest sanction enforced by the Bishop's Court was excommunication, that is, exclusion from the sacraments of the Church, such as Christian burial and society, to be followed by repentance and penance, after which absolution could be given. And you'll find all those terms defined in the glossary I mentioned at the start. Thirdly, as an administrator, the bishop was ultimately responsible for the management of the lands of the bishopric, known as the temporalities, as opposed to the spiritualities, that is, the spiritual responsibilities of the diocese or see. In the province of York, the medieval archbishop was lord of several manors and lordships, and had more than 20 places of residence, such as the archbishop's palace at Bishopthorpe, near York, and Caywood Castle, all of which would be managed for their income, and which would also obviously incur expenses of the household, maintenance and payment of officers, such as the steward of the lands of the bishopric and his subordinate bailiffs. Most of the rights and responsibilities of a bishop also applied to the two archbishops, but there were many areas where the duties of the archbishops were added to those of their role as bishop. As well as that, the medieval archbishops, received their authority directly from the Pope, symbolised in the pallium, a Y-shaped ecclesiastical vestment worn around the neck and over the shoulders. The Archbishop's authority was not confirmed until he had received this from the Pope and professed obedience to him. Of the main areas of the powers of each Archbishop, some were to take charge in dioceses where there was no bishop for whatever reason, that is, during a vacancy of the see and during that time collate or have the personal right to institute clergy to benefices, that is, give them the cure of souls or care of the spiritual life of their parishioners. The Archbishop would also oversee all stages in the appointment of bishops, particularly receiving their oath of obedience, and would carry out visitations, as I mentioned before. He would also preside over his provincial council, which became known as Convocation a meeting of all the higher clergy and heads of religious houses in the province to discuss ecclesiastical matters, and especially taxation of the clergy. Other legal responsibilities would be to exercise superior jurisdiction over bishops' ecclesiastical courts, particularly in appeals, but also to hear cases in his own court. Lastly, he would prove testaments, that is wills, of those in his province with notable goods that is, goods over a certain value, in more than one diocese of the province. Besides the officers already mentioned, the bishop was assisted by others, including the sequestrator, who had responsibilities for taking property into his custody in the name of the bishop if a church were vacant or in dispute. Also, the vicar-general appointed under commission for a fixed term during the absence of the bishop with wide powers. The bishop also had offices in his household, clerks who would be university educated and who acted as advisers, agents and administrators and other officers and sequestrators would often be chosen from them. Lesser clerks included notaries public and some who might be responsible for keeping the bishop's registers. The bishop might also have chaplains in his household. The bishop's chaplains were often close relatives acting as spiritual advisers and priests, staffing the bishop's chapel with secretarial duties and perhaps also looking after the bishop's household. So far, we have only considered the role of the clergy and religious within this hierarchy, but there are also several ways in which the ordinary people, the laity or lay people, as opposed to the clergy, interacted with the church. They might act as donors, making gifts of money or lands to religious houses, etc., founders of chantries, hospitals and almshouses, for instance, or patrons, holding the right to present a clergyman to a particular benefice. They might also have been pensioners, permitted to live in monastic houses, or have received licences to have an oratory in their house or to perform holy acts. For example, a widow might be allowed to take a vow of chastity, Or others might be permitted to go to fast or to go on pilgrimages. These are just some of the kinds of roles which as well as those of the clergy are reflected in the registers of the medieval bishops and archbishops and particularly in the registers of the archbishops of York on which we are working. So having examined the responsibilities of the bishop and the archbishop and their administration as well as the lay people and having gained an idea of the types of activities taking place, we can get an overview of the kind of matters that might have been recorded in the Archbishop's registers, which have been described as the official record of the Archbishop's administration. And these are the documents which we are examining in the Northern Way project. The registers we are looking at mainly consist of large volumes made up of folios of parchment, prepared animal skins, usually sheep or goat, and their entries could be seen as a compilation mostly of copies of outgoing and incoming letters, with the occasional original stitched in between folios, and also notes or memoranda of such letters having been sent or received, and other documents and events. Many of the registers are divided into sections for different types of business, including, for instance, sections for business relating to the various archdeaconries, roughly arranged in chronological order. So you could imagine a scribe sitting at his desk with a pile of letters, written on small pieces of parchment, copying them carefully one after another, perhaps as they were created or shortly afterwards, onto larger pieces of parchment, which would then be bound up into the volumes we still have today. Now, The Northern Way team is sitting at their desks, working their way through those scribes' entries, with more data being uploaded into our online database as we go along. I hope that you will enjoy exploring the records we are creating yourselves, and thank you very much for listening.
0: That's all for this time. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to know more, you can contact us on Twitter via at UOYBorthwick or email us via bothwick institute at york.ac.uk. If you'd like to discover more about our collections, you can do so through york.ac.uk forward slash borthwick. And if you haven't heard it yet, Don't forget our last episode with a fascinating story of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe. And if you have ideas of what you'd like to hear, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back soon with a particularly festive Christmas special.